Hello, I'm Mark, and this is the Fast Track Impact podcast, where we look at how researchers can become more productive and use their work to achieve real-world impacts. So, hello everyone, and welcome to a new podcast series. I'm really excited to be back. I've got a whole lot of really useful material that I'm excited to share with you. Uh, and what I'm going to try and do in this next series is to try and get the balance between productivity uh, and impact a bit better than uh, we did in the last one. So the last series was very much focused uh, about uh, impact, and there was a smattering of productivity tips and ideas uh, all the way through it. This time I'm going to try and make this much more uh, 50-50. Uh, I'm going to give you insights from the latest research uh, that I'm reading, uh, from my training uh, and the advice that I'm giving to people uh, across the higher education research sector um, uh, and the stuff that I'm preparing and writing into the second edition of the Research Impact Handbook, which is going to be published uh, this summer, and my next book, The Productive Researcher. It's going to be a mix of studio-recorded studio stuff, so uh, I'm actually sitting here in a studio recording this uh, today, so uh, with, uh, with luck it sounds a bit better than the, than the last series. Uh, but I'm also going to be doing interviews with various people uh, out and, uh, and about. Uh, uh, the studio that I'm in here today is uh, uh, owned by Dan Leith, uh, who is actually the singer-songwriter who wrote uh, the music that you can hear um, in the podcast throughout the series, and uh, the same for the, for the last series. These are of, uh, uh, our instrumental versions of his songs, but if you want to hear the, the full versions of them, I absolutely love his material. Uh, it's uh, danleith.com, that's D-A-N-L-Y-T-H.com. Okay, so uh, let's get into uh, into our first uh, episode. What I'm going to do uh, in this one is to really think about public engagement, but in a much deeper way than we normally think about it. Public engagement uh, tends to be focused on the event and what cool stuff can we do uh, on the day in this particular event or activity or online thing. Uh, I think what we do less well is the strategic preparation for that so that it can genuinely make a difference to people and to the right people, uh, and then thinking about how you can follow that up to deepen and to widen and to really understand what works so you can learn from that and uh, the kind of impact that public engagement actually has. So we can look into public engagement, how you prepare for it, how you enrich it on the day, and how you then uh, deepen it and try the impact of public engagement. But before we do that, let's have a look at today's tip. So like the last episode, uh, I would like to share with you uh, a few tips uh, running all the way through this. So every week I'm going to give you a, a tip, something that I find really useful uh, in my own research. Some of these are going to be impact tips, some of them are going to be uh, all about productivity. Uh, today this is a productivity one. Uh, and uh, this was stimulated by a colleague this week who came to me um, just complaining that he never gets time to write. Um, and we were looking at his schedule and uh, his time, and uh, and he was saying, yeah, the problem is I've just got too much teaching. I can't I can't write." Um, and we actually broke it down. Uh, he'd got teaching, yes, um, and sadly there was spread over every single day of the of the week, uh, which was fundamentally his his problem. 
Um, and when we talked about, well, how long does it take to prepare for each of those lectures and how much work do you have to do afterwards and can you kind of bunch all of the marking, etc., uh, then actually in his week he had a whole load of time that he could be writing. The problem, he told me, was I can't do that. I just need to have a whole day or, in fact, to be honest with you, I need two days to where I can just get my head into the zone and I can write. And what was happening was that for months and months, he'd never managed to get that two-day chunk. And so all of those writing tasks were still sitting there on his to-do list, waiting for the magic moment when he was going to get at least a full day with nothing to interrupt it. Uh, and sadly, if you've tried this, uh, you'll discover whether it's teaching, whether it's other urgent things that come in in your email, there's pretty much always something that comes up that has to be done in those two days that you thought you managed to earmark um, for, for writing. Uh, and there are two ways you can get around this. The first is that uh, you actually have a writing retreat and you actually say, right, you know what? It's not just me. I'm going to take me and a co-author. So I've got that accountability and we're going to go and book somewhere. Uh, we're going to have no internet and we're just going to put an out of office reply on and we're going to go and, and, and do this. Uh, I know some colleagues who do this just by putting on an out-of-office reply and saying, I am in a writing retreat, um, or I've got deadlines, uh, I won't be answering emails, I'll get back to you next week, um, phone me if it's really urgent kind of thing. And and they just do it, they're just in their office, but they're just not answering emails. Uh, that takes a level of, uh, of, of self-control that perhaps not all of us have got. Um, but uh, but what I do um, is I've now for the last two or three years um, writing retreats are a, a thing of the past for me. I just do not have time. I'm so busy, um, and yet uh, I still need to write. Um, and uh, despite the fact that I haven't had a full day of writing now for probably years, uh, I'm still fairly productive. Last year I published two books and uh, and ten peer reviewed um, research articles. Uh, and a couple of book chapters as well. And I did that by writing in chunks. This is a technique where you work out, right, uh, in my day, what are the chunks that I can set aside for writing and how long are they? Uh, and then you have a to-do list where you now write out all the different parts of your writing that you need to do as to-do uh, list items. So uh, I need to write a section uh, of this paper. Uh, on this particular topic. Uh, or even it's just, I need to write a paragraph in a paper, which is my research design, um, uh, and I need to have a think about that. Uh, and maybe even broke it down into, you know what, I need to think, what is my research design? <laughs> and then I need to write it. Uh, and you're, you're creating um, uh, your, your writing um, as a series of chunks, uh, a to-do list, which is broken down into chunks, which could include write, uh, thinking, it can include outlining, it can include writing a paragraph, writing a section. Uh, and then, uh, as you get into your day, you realise, right, I've got an hour before I need to start preparing for this meeting. Um, so which of the things on my to-do list could fit into an hour? Huh, that chunk there. Right, I'm now going to set myself a target in this one hour, I'm going to write that chunk. Uh, and I work as hard as I can in as focused a way as I can. I've turned off my email, it's just an hour, and I'm producing that chunk. And you can get two, three, uh, very often for me with, with traveling, uh, I've got a chunk which is um, a, a thinking task as I drive to the airport. Uh, I've got a chunk now which is in the airport lounge. Um, I've got half an hour and I'm going to do this in that half an hour. Then I've got an hour on the flight and then I'm going to chunk this piece of work for the flight. Um, and then I've got uh, half an hour on a train the other side. That's where I'm going to do my meeting prep. 
it really does work. You can become incredibly productive. It's just a very different way of thinking about your writing and getting over yourself, getting over this idea that you have to have uh, a chunk which is minimum one day or more than a day because the reality is you will procrastinate forever. Okay, so in this first episode of the new series, I want to think about how to do public engagement for impact, not just for the hell of it. Uh, as I said in the introduction, I think that a lot of us do public engagement because it's a good thing to do. It's the right thing to do. And absolutely, it is. And I think that there are some really powerful normative arguments here that if we are, as most of us are, in some shape or form funded by the public purse to do our research, then we have uh, a duty, an obligation to try and extract some form of value for the public and to communicate this back to the public. So great. What I want to do though is to think about what you can do before and after your public engagement to make sure that it's not just a good thing, but in addition to it being a good thing, it's something that actually genuinely makes a difference, that people value, that people remember, that changes how people think and what people do. So let's start with the before. The first thing that I think most of us fail to do when we're doing public engagement is to really systematically think through who are our publics. And I think the first fallacy is that there is such a thing as the general public. Uh, the reality is, if you put on some kind of public engagement event, then depending on the topic, depending on your location, depending on the day of the week, if you were to do an exit survey of the people who turn up to that, you will discover uh, very often that you have older people, not young people. Um, you have people who are perhaps more educated rather than less educated. People who have uh, a set of interests. Uh, they're interested in, in health, in exercise, in uh, whatever. Uh, there will be very clear biases in the people who will come to your event. Uh, put that uh, on uh, a, a weekday evening um, and instantly you've got one audience. Put that on a Saturday morning um, uh, and you've got a different audience. Run that in the university in a lecture theatre as a public lecture, you've got one audience. Run it in uh, the, the local village um, green and you've got a different audience. So the, the general public is, is, is not a thing. Uh, what you have is different publics. And we can segment them in various different ways, um, as I've suggested now, by things like age and gender and uh, things like that, but also by interests. Uh, and what you need to do, I, I would argue, is, uh, is to do a public's analysis. It's a very simple thing to do. Uh, if you're interested in this, go to the Fast Track Impact website and uh, click on resources or just fasttrackimpact.com forward slash resources. Uh, and you'll see a whole load of free templates. Uh, there's an editable version of this and it's called a, a stakeholder uh, and or publics um, uh, analysis. Uh, and if I explain the theory behind this, you can have a look at the template uh, and actually try it for yourself because the theory is, I think, quite powerful. And the theory goes that uh, any uh, public will vary uh, along two different um, axes. The first is that they will vary in their level of interest in your research. And the second is that they will vary in their level of benefit from your research. 
So there will be certain publics who are massively interested in your work, who will naturally come to things and be champing at the bit. Others who are genuinely not that interested, who it's going to be a lot harder to engage with. And there are some who will massively benefit from this. This is exactly what they need. Uh, it, it's going to enrich them, it's going to inspire them, it's going to make them healthier, fitter, uh, more fulfilled, whatever. And others who, frankly, yeah, they got this stuff. They, they know it. It's actually not going to make a big impact on them at all. So if you draw in your imagination uh, a two-by-two two matrix, um, so a little cross uh, in your mind, uh, and you've got uh, a level of interest running from left to right and level of benefit running from top to bottom, then in the top right quadrant in your imagination, you should have a little box here, which is the people who are high interest, high benefit. These are the publics that are going to be dead easy to reach. They're going to come to all of your events. Uh, you hardly need to even put any effort in whatsoever. Um, uh, and when they come, they, they benefit from it. That's why they come, because this is stuff that they need, that they're interested in, that, that is really beneficial to them. Great. That's the easy bit. What's much harder then uh, is the, the groups um, in the top left and in the bottom right. So first of all, let's think about those guys who could in theory benefit massively from your research, but actually, frankly, are not that interested. These are your hard-to-reach publics, and these guys are going to take a lot of effort to, to reach out to. Uh, if you put something on in the university, they're probably not going to come along. You're going to have to work out how you can take your ideas, your events, your activity to them, where they are, in the words, in the terms that they are interested in, that connects with things that, that do genuinely interest them and excite them uh, so that they have enough interest that they engage with your work and can actually then benefit from it. Uh, so, for example, we're doing work on, I don't know, gun crime, and we want to reach young people who are affected by gun crime. And actually, they're not interested in the research. Uh, but now we're taking an event to youth groups in a particular location where we know that there is a high incidence of gun crime, where there are a lot of victims of these kind of things which are reported. Um, and we're now running events uh, which are specifically targeted to the interests of that group once we've got into their heads and really researched what are the general interests of this group who are affected by this issue. Uh, the next really challenging group are the, the bottom right segments. So this is the, the people who have uh, a high level of interest in what you're doing, but actually compared to other groups are not going to benefit that much from your work. And of course, there's nothing wrong with working with these groups. That's fine. Um, but I think what often happens is uh, as researchers, if we don't be careful about this if we don't think about this, uh, then uh, then you end up doing a whole lot of events for these groups because they come along, they're interested, but actually in terms of the impact, um, you're kind of preaching to the converted. It, it doesn't really make a big difference. So a good example of this um, is some, some work that I've been doing with Queen Mary University, London, uh, on public engagement. Uh, and this is one of, I would argue, the most forward-thinking universities uh, on uh, public engagement. They've got a really high-power unit that focuses specifically on public engagement. Um, and they've been doing events over the years and learning from their mistakes as well as from what works and very often then publishing that and, and helping others. And 
uh, they had uh, a drive where they really wanted to reach out to their local community. They uh, are located in a fairly deprived part of London. They wanted to, uh, to, to, to say to everyone, look, we are open for business. The campus is open. This shouldn't be perceived as the domain for only students. Uh, we want to, to open our gates to the local community. And so they ran a whole lot of events on campus. Uh, and when you looked at the data, they were really well attended. You had packed lecture theatres, the stalls had loads of people at them. But when they dug into it, they realised that actually the majority of these people were students and staff and people who were genuinely interested in the research, um, but for different reasons. And they weren't actually reaching as many as they wanted of the families and the young people and the people who were harder to reach. And so what they did was to then co-develop um, a community uh, sort of festival of communities, I think they called it, um, with their local community. Uh, and this is co-developed now with community leaders who are coming into the university, talking to them. They're going out to those groups and saying, right, what would value, what would be valuable to you? What, how would your constituencies um, benefit from this? Uh, and then they created an event which was actually out there in the community, jointly designed and led with stalls from the local community and local shops and charities and help groups, etc., as well as from the university. And it was a massive success and reached the groups that they really wanted to reach, uh, the key players, uh, the people who were interested, who would benefit, and those guys uh, who were really hard to reach as well, who wouldn't naturally have come to this stuff, but that got drawn in through the way that they designed it. Of course, there will then be people uh, who are not that interested and who won't benefit that much either. Uh, and uh, this is a group that you can then deprioritize. Uh, this isn't to say that you're not going to welcome them, that you're not going to try and do some work with these guys. But if you've got limited time, limited resources, then focus on the other groups first. And if it benefits the guys who are less interested, who will benefit less, then great. They can come along, they can benefit as well. Fantastic. So... This is the, the pre-work. Now you understand who you are trying to reach. And this is a much more nuanced understanding now. I've got specific um, faith-based groups, um, particular communities which are disadvantaged, um, ethnic minority groups, for example. And I'm now thinking about exactly who they are, what their interests are, and precisely the kind of benefits that they are likely to benefit most from. Uh, and different groups are going to benefit in different ways, and they're going to be interested in different things. And now I'm empowered to start thinking about how I could design an event, a series of events, something online, that will really speak to the, the publics that can benefit most from my research. So that's the before stuff. Uh, the other thing that I think that we really miss out on um, and forget about is what we do after the event. So we're really focused now on running the event, making it work, making it exciting, cutting edge, um, getting everyone through the door, um, and we get lots of feedback from people on the day. Wow, it was incredible. It's changed my life. I now think totally differently, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Fantastic. You've done that. My question is, what happened next? And most researchers can't answer that question. They've got no idea whether those people actually did anything differently as a result of what they learned, uh, whether those lessons were things that they remembered a few months down the line or had completely forgotten about. Uh, and uh, despite the fact that they were engaged and there were some fantastic conversations and a real thirst, a real appetite for more, there is no way to actually follow that up, to deepen and broaden that engagement and to continue those relationships for the long run. 
And so uh, what I believe we need to do is to think about how we can build things into our activities that can give us the opportunity to legitimately uh, work with people over the longer term so that we can deepen uh, our engagement and evaluate whether or not there was indeed long-term change. Now, that's important for two reasons. Um, for me, uh, this is partly because I want to know. Uh, I've put all this effort uh, in. I want to know, did it work? And actually, if it didn't work, I want to know that so that the next time I run something like this, I can do it differently. I can do it better and I can achieve greater impacts and greater benefits for people. The second reason, though, is that increasingly, as researchers, we are asked to report on this stuff. So for most of us, our funders will at some point ask us to justify uh, why we did what we did. And if we spent their money on a public engagement activity, then they want to know, well, did it work or not? Uh, and we will be able to tell them, well, all these people came and this is what they said on the day. But actually far more powerful to be able to say, and this is what it did in the long term. This is how it changed their thinking, their attitudes, their behaviours, um, and what they did next. Uh, and of course, if you are in the UK listening to this, uh, you'll uh, be aware of the Research Excellence Framework, or, or REF. Uh, and increasingly, uh, we are trying to think now about how you can capture and, and track the longer term impacts of public engagement. And if you look at people who submitted these last time round for evaluation, the vast majority of them were all about feedback on the day. And I think that increasingly next time round um, to, to really have something convincing that, uh, that people will see as significant and far reaching, you're going to have to have that longitudinal element to it to say, look, it wasn't just uh, a kind of a, a drop in the ocean. It wasn't just a thing on the day. This, this really has had a long term uh, impact. So I'm not going to go into this in uh, any detail, um, but uh, uh, the work that I've been doing with uh, Queen Mary University London um, will be published at some point uh, this, this year, um, hopefully sooner rather than later this year. This is uh, work I've done in collaboration with the National Coordinating Centre uh, on Public Engagement, um, but funded and led by uh, QMUL. And uh, in this, we've got a, a toolkit of different public engagement um, tools that you can use to not only enrich your events, uh, but to also be able to evaluate them. Uh, and we look at tools which can help you to evaluate whether you got the design of your event right, um, whether uh, it happened well on the day, uh, the delivery, the, the immediate kind of outcomes of, of public engagement, but also then crucially tools that can tell you over the longer term whether you have uh, had an impact uh, with these people. Uh, I think one of my favourites is uh, the uh, postcard to your future self, uh, and I'm going to give you that one in a bit more depth in, in, a, in a tip later on in the, um, in the series. Uh, obvious ones, at least obvious if you're a social scientist, uh, would be semi-structured interviews uh, and, and workshops um, or focus groups. Uh, and I'm mentioning this because I think the obvious thing that people do is, well, we'll do a questionnaire. Uh, you do a questionnaire on the day, maybe you manage to... Um, uh, get people's email addresses and you send them an online questionnaire later on. Uh, and very often the, the depth of material that you get um, is, is not really sufficient to, to convincingly uh, talk to the impact or really be able to follow up. Uh, and one of the problems is that actually uh, it's very hard to predict 
how people will react to these things and what people will do with it. Uh, and the, the open-ended nature of semi-structured interviews or, or focus groups and workshops means that you can then much more creatively explore what people did with it and, and what happened next um, in a more kind of emergent, open way and really capture the, the qualitative depth and breadth of, of that experience, which can be quite hard to put into words. And sometimes it takes a bit of prompting and, um, and discussion to really get people to be able to articulate how they've benefited and how that has influenced certain decisions or, or behaviours or, or attitudes or ways of thinking. Um, how do you get those uh, those email addresses or the, the the right to legitimately follow people up? Um, uh, one very simple thing is uh, to have sign-up sheets. Uh, the problem is if you have a sign-up sheet uh, and then, then you ask people uh, when they sign into your event to give you uh, their email address, uh, a lot of people will say, well, thanks, but no thanks. I don't want any more spam. So what you have to do is to think about something that you can do that will add significant enough value that if you give me your email address as you're signing into this, then I will give you X, Y, or Z. This is connecting back to your public's analysis, the things that you think they are most likely to value, and you're trying to draw from that understanding to think of things that will actually add value enough that they're willing to give you the, the contact details so you can actually follow up. Uh, a couple of other ideas uh, from the toolkit. Uh, one is to... Uh, have an event app. Uh, so a number of apps that um, exist uh, for events uh, and uh, there uh, are platforms now that exist where you can kind of design your own app pretty much from, from scratch. Uh, the platforms that exist to do this online are, are a bit constrained, but the great thing is they're very cost effective rather than getting an app developer to come and do this for you. Uh, and you can add value to your event for smartphone users and beware, of course, there is a bias here to those who own smartphones. They can find uh, everything about the speakers, the events, uh, a map of, of, of your site if, you, if it's a festival, for example, um, lots of additional content, etc. So you enrich your event. Uh, but at the same time, you have the ability through in-app notifications to ask people for feedback at fixed times after the, after the event. Uh, final one is uh, a technique called uh, photo survey. Uh, this is something that you can um, uh, set up uh, during your event um, uh, uh, and have people going around taking photographs on the day, uh, but you can then crucially do after the event as well. Uh, and what you're doing is you're giving people disposable cameras, uh, increasingly hard to find nowadays, admittedly, um, uh, and you're saying to them, take pictures of the things that you love most. A, about the event, but B, then about this theme. So this is, uh, for example, uh, the Festival of Communities uh, in, in London was uh, was about our community. Uh, and then uh, getting a number of those people to volunteer to take a camera and over the next few weeks to go around their community taking photographs of the things that they love most about their community. Uh, at the end of it, you develop the photographs. If you want, there's an extra set where you can go back to people and interview them and ask questions about their photographs. Uh, and then you have a, a little um, uh, exhibition. So you uh, hire out the community village hall, for example, uh, and you then print up the photos uh, big. And if you've done some interviews, then you can put little quotes next to them uh, about the things that they love, the things that they hate. Uh, quite often you'll get photographs of the same thing uh, with very different things next to them. I love this for one reason. Someone else hates it for a completely different reason. Um, uh, and actually what you've got is now a ready-made follow-up activity to your event, which is going deeper. Uh, and you can now integrate other things from your research 
uh, other events and activities around that exhibition, uh, artwork, for example, stuff like that, uh, and to really then get people to to talk in depth, to think in depth, to give notes and, and feedback in a visitor book, uh, and 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 really explore this much deeper and and take this much further. So. Lots of ideas out there. Um, here's a, a flavour, I think, of some of the things that, that you can do. Uh, the point is, this is not just about the day. You have to think about what you're going to do way before you run your event, if you're going to do it strategically and you're going to get the right people through the door uh, to have the maximum benefit possible so you're not wasting your time. Uh, and you need to know whether it's worked. You need to know not just that the activities worked, that people had a good time and got something out of it on the day. You need to know whether this is working for the long run, whether people are remembering, whether it's actually making any kind of a difference. Because I would argue if it's not, then actually, can it, what is the point? Uh, and if it is, then great. And let's record this and be able to actually tell the world about how amazing this was. So my uh, action today is, uh, my suggestion is you go out and download the stakeholder stroke public's analysis template from the Fast Track Impact website and start filling it out. Uh, what you have now is uh, a table. Um, it's not got too many columns, shouldn't take too long. Uh, and I recommend to do this for just one single public. Uh, it won't take you long. Uh, it takes about 10 minutes or so just to go through one single row of this table where you've got that particular public. Now, defining them as, as clearly as you can, it may be um, a representative group or organisation that represents that public. Uh, and then ask yourself the question, what is it about my research that they are most likely to be interested in? Uh, and roughly, how interested do you think they are, high, medium or low? And then do the same in terms of benefit. Um, what might they benefit? What might they say afterwards was really useful, that really inspired them, that they really benefited from in some tangible way? And how much of a benefit do you think that might be, high, medium or low? Uh, and simply by doing that, the structured nature of that thinking, I guarantee you, will be incredibly empowering. You will start to think differently about your publics. You will start automatically to think differently about how you plan your next event. Uh, and my hope is you spend 10 minutes on that. It convinces you it is worth spending uh, a bit more time doing this for a number of your other publics uh, so that you can really get the most out of this. So give it a try, see how you get on and I uh, look forward to speaking to you again next week. Mm -hmm.